Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. morning. At least it's morning when I'm recording this. And welcome to A Million Other Choices. I'm your host, Kim. The story that I have for you today was very difficult to get enough information on. All of the news reports just spit out the exact same information and I couldn't locate any of the court documents, which kind of isn't surprising considering it happened in Quebec and they have kind of some different privacy laws there. But it's a case that brings up some questions for me about human behavior and what distinguishes some people from others. This is the murders of Francine Levesque and Matisse Alex Leblanc. On the afternoon of January 31st, 2001, 28-year-old Melanie Alex went to visit her mom at her bungalow in Lacadie, Quebec. Now, it's important to note here that this Melanie Alex is not the same Melanie Alex whose 21-year-old son Dylan Koshman disappeared on October 11th, 2008, after a fight with his roommates never to be seen again from the area around Calgary Trail and 34th Avenue in Edmonton. That case has actually been turned over from missing persons to homicide and has not yet been solved, and Dylan's remains have not yet been found. Uh, sorry, that is just a side note there, but I just didn't want to get you the wrong impression if that's who you thought we were talking about today. Anyways, Melanie's mom, Francine Levesque, she was only 51, but she was wheelchair bound, but she was still able to live independently in her own one-story house. Now, a few hours after Melanie left, 911 was called because the house was on fire. Francine Levesque was found dead on the floor near in an interior doorway in the house, but it was a bit suspicious that her wheelchair was found in a different room. When an officer called Melanie to tell her that her mom had passed away in a fire, she immediately started screaming and crying and telling the officer that they really needed to seriously look into her brother Francois for the fire because it had to be murder. So they were a little bit suspicious already, but they were actually more suspicious about Melanie than Francois. And they found her screaming and crying and this remarkable ability of hers to be calm again within minutes a little bit odd. But although the police had their suspicions about Melanie's involvement, the arson investigators determined that the fire had been started by improperly disposed of cigarettes. And the medical examiner found that she had died of smoke inhalation, so the case was wrapped up pretty quickly. On May 12, 2003, so two years later, 
Grigor Racine, who was Melanie's landlord on of the rural property, which was a white clapboard house with two brick chimneys and an orange trim that was in St. Blaise, Quebec, where Melanie was living with her two children, a three-year-old daughter and a one-year-old son, Matisse, who had been born on May 4, 2002, and had just celebrated his first birthday. Melanie had been expected at Grigor's office to sign a purchase agreement for the house for $60,000, but she hadn't shown up. So Grigor drove over to the house and found Melanie leaning out of a second story window and the house engulfed in flames with smoke billowing out from the window. Melanie was leaning from the window with her daughter crying for help. Grigor managed to get Melanie and her daughter down from the window and safely seated in his truck before he ran in to rescue little Matisse. He says, quote, I opened the door to his room and the heat was so intense it was like a bomb hit me. I couldn't breathe. So he came back out to get a few gulps of air and then ran back in again where he found little Matisse in his crib. He grabbed him, ran outside with him, attempted CPR, but when paramedics and the firemen arrived, Matisse was declared deceased at the scene. Melanie was obviously distraught, just screamed, my baby, my baby. Now right away again, they're suspicious. Two deadly fires in two years is a lot of bad luck. Melanie said that she had accidentally left a baby bottle on the stove, but Sergeant Alan Martel said that everything in the kitchen was in place and there were things on the counter like dog biscuits that weren't burnt. Instead, they found that the fire had actually originated in three places, the laundry room, a bedroom closet, and under the stairs. They also did find several baby bottles full of liquid that were placed around the house, but in odd places, and several containers of pills and a syringe with some purple colored liquid in it. They also found a handwritten will that was dirty and wet from the fire hoses, but still readable. Melanie says in this will, which they determined had only been written the day before the fire, that she wished it to be buried in her family's plot and she wanted her children to be cremated. There was also a handwritten note where she scrawled some nasty things about her ex-husband and the children's father, Stéphane LeBlanc, stating that he never accepted the fact that I threw him out in January. I love my children and I know that he will beat them, suggesting this fire had been an attempt at a murder-suicide. But Melanie insists that the two fires were a terrible coincidence and that she had put the bottle on the stove and then went upstairs to check on her kids and accidentally fell asleep, only to wake up to the house being on fire. At the same time that they were investigating Matisse's death, which they were convinced by this point is a homicide, they reopened the investigation into her mother's death in 2001. Melanie's brother, Francois, who was about a year and a half older than Melanie, quickly came forward to tell the police that Melanie had been a menace to society for as long as he could remember. Melanie, it seems, had a history of making false allegations. In fact, trying to blame Francois for the fire at her mom's house. On May 16th, she was arrested and confessed that she had given both her kids doses of a sleep aid that she had a prescription for, saying that she hadn't wanted them to suffer. Her relationship with her father, Stefan, had been rather bumpy, and Stefan was prone to violence and had made threats to the children and to her. Now, again, this is her version of events. I didn't find any reports that substantiated it. Stefan had actually been trying to get custody of the children to keep them safe from his their mother, whom he felt was vindictive and a dangerous person. He hadn't had any luck being believed up to this point. 
Now, Stefan did tell the National Post in 2005 that her reports of abuse were exaggerated, but the experience of losing Matisse forced him to start therapy. I have been going through therapy and what has happened in the past is the past. I don't really know what that means. Like if in fact there was some violence between them, but that's in the past, or if he's trying to put their relationship and its trauma in the past. Stefan was able to prove that Melanie had in fact been suspected of starting a fire to his Jeep that had happened shortly after they split four months before the fire. Melanie, it was discovered, had received some life insurance from her mother's death, which they believed was the motive for the murder. She also had a $200,000 life insurance policy on Matisse. When it came to her mother's death, they determined in that second investigation that the fire had actually started in the wood-burning stove, which she did before leaving the house, but also another fire in another location further back in the house. Now, one of the very interesting things that was important to the prosecution's case, besides the cause of the fire, was the time of death of both Francine and Matisse. In Francine's case, when her body was re-examined, they found that she also had traces of the same sleep aid that Matisse and his sister had in their systems, which was oxazepam, which, remember, Melanie had a prescription for. They also found that there had been two fires set in Francine's house, one that had flared and then cooled enough that soot had actually layered on top of Francine's body before another fire in a different part of the house caused enough of an inferno to attract the attention of the neighbors who called 911. Both Francine and Matisse had been drugged before the fires and died of smoke inhalation hours before firefighters even arrived. In the fire that was started in her own house with her children inside, there were two chairs in the living room which had been intentionally set on fire. However, those fires had burned themselves out and were actually cool to the touch when firefighters arrived to fight the major blaze which had started in the kitchen, which had actually started from oil and had nothing to do with the baby bottle left on the stove. At the trial, which of course wasn't until December 2005, Melanie testified on her own behalf, always a mistake. When it came to her mother's death, she maintained that it was probably her brother that had started the fire and killed her for his portion of the estate. She maintained the story about the fire being started with the bottle on the stove and that she had fought thick black suffocating smoke to get to Matisse, but when she came to him, she had to write him off because he was already dead. So she took her daughter to the window to save her. She told all of this without so much as a crocodile tear, which was rather disheartening to the jury members, obviously. The coroner had testified earlier, the child was alive at the beginning of the fire. He breathed smoke and poisonous gases. I will be right back after these brief messages. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As to the videotaped interview she gave on May 16th, where she says that she gave her kids oxazepam so that they wouldn't suffer, she claims that the detective was actually just putting words into her mouth. Actually, 
She just wanted to calm them down because Stefan had threatened that he was going to kill their mother, and this was very upsetting for the kids who were freaking out about her safety. And as far as that will that she wrote, she just wanted to make sure that her children would get her estate if Stefan did kill her. But the prosecutor pointed out that if that were true, why was the only mention of the children that you wanted them cremated? To that, she didn't really have an answer other than to tell the jury that she had suffered for years sexual abuse at the hands of her grandfather, and that as a teenager, her brother Francois had started on her. She said her whole life had been nothing but trauma after trauma as an adult, suffering from further rapes, and then, of course, the years of abuse by her husband. She suffered car accidents, and then, of course, there was the torture by the police. So none of this was her fault, you see. It was just what society had done to her. It took the jury a full six days of deliberation to find her guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder towards her three-year-old daughter. She had also originally been charged with two counts of arson, but for some reason the judge, France Charvenu, stayed those two charges, probably because it doesn't really add anything to the sentence. The max for no matter how many people you murder is 25 years before you can apply for parole but you're given a life sentence, so you will be under some kind of government supervision until you take your last breath, which really isn't much consolation for those of us that know that someone can serve 25 years and still commit crimes while on parole. Her brother Francois said of the verdict, she's dangerous, I know that for a fact. I will be having a nice Christmas and a vacation for the next 25 years now that she's behind bars. I felt threatened by her, and I knew she'd have no reaction because she doesn't feel responsible for what happened. Stefan said, I saw her face when she was sentenced and she looked disappointed, and that made me happy. Melanie was recorded when she phoned the Montreal Journal from her prison cell at Tangay Penitentiary as saying that the trial had been completely unfair. The judge had been mean and the prosecutors too charming with the media. She was, after all, the victim in all of this. She also set her clothes on fire in prison while she was wearing them in an attempt to die by suicide that was not successful. She, of course, appealed, saying that the interview she gave on May 16th, just after her arrest, should never have been admitted into evidence. The interview had been in violation of her constitutional rights, and she says they refused her a lawyer. And this was dismissed as not being truthful. So now, that was the murder of Francine Levesque and Matisse Alex LeBlanc. Um, and what have we learned today? Well, that Melanie is a liar, liar, pants on fire. But I have questions. There are a number of things about forensic psychiatrists that really don't surprise me. My sister, who works for not-for-profits, recently did a podcast under Nomina Mental Health Mavens, where she interviewed a forensic psychologist. And besides the NCR defenses, they also discussed trauma and how trauma, particularly early adverse childhood experiences, can actually change the wiring essentially in the brain, which makes sense and explains why two people can have similar traumatic experience and one murders his family and the other one doesn't do anything, maybe just goes to therapy, which is a question that I've often wondered about. And the good news is that this pathway rewiring is somewhat reversible when it comes to trauma. So get your butt into therapy if you've experienced trauma. But trauma is an excuse for why you ghosted that guy on Tinder or why you jump when you hear a loud noise. It's not an excuse for murdering your disabled mother and your own child. I also know, based on my research, that about 15% of forensic examinations of people claiming to have mental health issues, particularly PTSD, which is directly related to trauma, show malingering. 
which is just a fancy word for faking it. In the correctional setting, it's more like 45%. And we know that in many cases, a person facing a lengthy prison term will feign mental illness and claim traumatic childhood events as the reason for their crimes. This is also not unexpected and answers the question of how often do people try to fake traumatic childhoods for their own gain? Did Melanie make up the allegations? It would seem so, if only because there are so many reports of her trauma. And most of us are not that unlucky, and it seems like so much of it was exaggerated as being worse than it actually was. False allegations of abuse, particularly rape and child molestation cases, are generally not falsely reported. So if someone confides in you, you are best to believe them. But when they are, there are two different types. There's false memories and then intentional allegations. In intentionally false reported cases, the motives motives are normally financial gain, maybe to get sympathy or attention, to deny consensual sex that they maybe don't want to admit to, or to create an alibi, which is like the 15-year-old that tells her parents that she was raped so that she doesn't have to fess up to the dad being her 25-year-old boyfriend or whatever. And with false memories, the brain is super complex and there is this thing called mental imagery. People tend to remember more trauma than they've experienced, a phenomenon referred to as memory amplification. So we don't store our memories with a label specifying the origins of each individual detail. So details can get thrown in here and here and there, and our brains can often fill in gaps of memory with other memories, creating a new memory. So that kind of explains why someone would maybe make that kind of stuff up. They're actually not making it up. They've just mixed up their memory banks. It also helps understand a bit better why one person can experience something that, you know, a number of us would consider an inconvenience like a fender bender and someone else with that experience considers it very traumatic. It all has to do with how experiences get stored in your memory banks and the brain pathways and how they're wired. Intentional false allegations are most likely the case in Melanie because she was looking to escape accountability by making those allegations. But here's the question that I can't seem to find an answer for that actually satisfies my curiosity. Why do some people blame others for things? Imagine that you have two children. One comes home with a C grade and says, I'm terrible at math, or I forgot that there was a test today, or something like that. The other kid comes home with a C grade and says, my teacher doesn't like me, or no one reminded me. What's the difference? Why does one person take ownership and the other blame someone else? And I'm sure you've seen this phenomena a million times in the workforce. It's Susie's fault, or the chair makes my back hurt and I can't focus, or the sun was in my eyes. Whatever the excuse, it never comes back to, I screwed up. Now, there are a couple of theories on this, neither of which I totally buy into. Psychology Today cites from a couple of studies done on college students that found that people were more likely to blame external factors and people if they had poor emotional regulation issues. It's basically a defense mechanism to avoid feelings of guilt and shame, which are, of course, negative emotions. And this supports the view that individuals who have difficulty coping with negative emotions tend to blame other people for their own bad choices, whereas people who are good at emotional control um, were not as affected by negative emotions. But I kind of call BS on this because I know plenty of people that have issues with emotional regulation and even borderline personality disorder, of which emotional dysregulation is a hallmark, 
and they don't do it. They internalize blame and shame just like the majority of us do. Harvard Business did their own research on this and they determined that we're all actually naturally wired to blame others when things go wrong by something called fundamental attribution bias. That's basically that people, what people do is a reflection of who they are rather than considering that there's other factors maybe controlling their behavior. Recent brain imaging research, which came out of Duke University, showed that positive events are processed by the prefrontal cortex. It's a little bit slow moving, takes a little while, and it tends to conclude that things happen kind of by accident, like by fluke. Negative events, on the other hand, they're processed by the amygdala, which controls our flight or flight response. And the amygdala does its work super, super fast and concludes that bad things happen on purpose. And it happens so fast, in fact, that we don't even notice that we're making an assumption. We just know that the person closest to the problem must have done it on purpose. So our brains interpret blame the same way that they interpret physical attack. When we're blamed, our prefrontal cortexes effectively shut down and direct all of our energy to defending ourselves, which ironically sabotages our ability to solve the problem for which we're being blamed. Yeah, I still don't buy it. I always go back to my friend Paulette's assessment of life. There are two kinds of people in this world, assholes and non-assholes. If you do something wrong, just fess up. The shame is so much less than getting caught lying or murdering someone. So I think that Melanie was just an asshole and I really don't buy all her excuses. And even if she did experience all of the trauma that she says that she did, how does that tie into killing your mom and your own child? Like someone explain that connection to me because I don't get it. Trauma, I get. And I get that you can rewire your brain and make you behave in ways that are completely self-destructive. But setting your mom's house on fire for some insurance money just doesn't really seem to have anything to do with being traumatized and then blaming your brother for it. Anyways, I'll be back again next week with another perplexing case. In the meantime, please do your rate review thing, tell your friends about the podcast, and sign up for the ad-free and bonus episodes. There are getting to be quite a few bonus episodes in there now, so it's a good time to sign up. Otherwise, you're missing out. As always, thank you so much for listening. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.